When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, we look at Sansa's first chapter in A Clash of Kings, and my guest is Professor Jan Doolittle-Wilson. Also, if you've been watching Andor, or if you're planning on watching Andor, I will be joining the Lorehounds for their season wrap of that show. So do a search for Lorehounds if you're interested in that. But today's order of business is Sansa, and specifically our first look at Joffrey's notion of kingship. Cameos in this chapter include the Hound and Tyrion, and we get our first introduction to Dantos. And then I include a bit of my conversation with historian Professor Ian McGuinness. If you're interested in looking at a window into the medieval world, have a look at his book, Scotland's Second War of Independence. Ian and I talk a little bit about House of the Dragon and historical parallels. All right, without further ado, here is Professor Jan Doolittle Wilson. Jan Doolittle Wilson. Jan- <laughs> 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 I'll try that again. Jan Doolittle Wilson, welcome back to Electric Bookaloo. I hear that you have a uh, new publication in the world, and yes, I wanted to it- ask you about it. I do. And and hi, Anthony. Thank you again for inviting me back. Um, I do. This is a a collection of critical essays that are focused on the the HBO series, A Game of Thrones, although there are many references to uh, the books as well. Um, It's from McFarland Press, and it's titled Power and Subversion in Game of Thrones, um, Mm. edited by A. Keith Kelly. And so it's a collection of essays Uh, written by uh, academics, both in the United States and different places in Europe. Uh, So it's a really good collection of scholars coming from... And what is the title of your essay? If you remember, I know that you wrote this a long time ago. I did. I'm looking it up right now. Um, (laughs) Sometimes. sometimes So mine is titled, Who Has a Better Story Than Bran the Broken? Ah. The Power of Disability Narratives. Nice. And so um, there, you know, I think my essay is maybe the only one on disability, but there's gender theory. Um, So looking at, you know, the female characters, uh, looking at ideas of, you know, how is masculinity portrayed? How is it kind of complicated throughout the series? Tons of stuff on medieval history, you know, drawing comparisons and and how medievalism is portrayed within uh, the series. So a lot of really... I can't wait to sit yeah. down and read through all of the the various essays because I've only read mine at this point. So okay, well, all right. I'm sure that a number of our listeners will want to pick that up. And one thing that I like about McFarlane is that they don't often put out like three hundred dollar books. Yes. Um, <laughs> so some some presses will do that for academic it's works. Very true. 
Um, now, I've asked you to help me look at Sansa Stark. Uh, yes. And this chapter, we could go a number of directions, you know, directions specifically that make me think of you and your work. We could talk about Tyrion and mm. perceptions of disability. We could talk about the, the ways that uh, gender is on display in this chapter but I want to begin, and I don't know how you're going to respond to this, but I want to begin okay. with a question that I asked my previous guest, Stephanie. Okay. Um, and it very well could be that you don't have a good answer for this, but in both Arya's chapter and Sansa's chapter, they are beaten, or at least there's a reference to them being beaten. Mm-hmm. And this is this is one of these times where it's like, you know, isn't isn't the medieval period so different than ours? But I this, in addition to that, it's like, I, I'm I'm old enough to remember being beaten, you know, yeah. <laughs> not as severely as Sansa or, or Arya, but uh, that was part of my childhood. I I think it might be something that now I I'm sort of on the lower end of Gen X. Yeah. This is a very interesting cusp, I think. Like, I think we are b- both are born around the cusp of when it was sort of like typical to spank children in America. Right. And then it's kind of hit or miss, you know, in the generation below us or after I us. I agree. Yeah. It, it wouldn't raise that many eyebrows, right? In, in the time that we were, you know, growing right, up, and that right. was just—I—I I, I don't have statistics to bear this out, but I would think it was pretty typical, um, uh-huh. and and certainly not the kind of you know controversy subject for debate, you know, that it is today for sure. Right. At least it would raise eyebrows. Like you, right. you know, there may be different philosophies out there, but you know, the culturally. Culturally, it's mm-hmm. it's not just part of the typical American childhood as it once was. Right. Um, now, of course, I can't speak to other parts of the world or whatever, but um, this is one of those situations where it's like Sansa refers to herself being beaten, um, you know, not by a parent, uh, you know, by like the parent of the realm, I suppose, uh, for for reasons that are absolutely ridiculous. Right. Um, but I wonder if I wonder if we look at that differently and with modern eyes. I wonder if it's just like, well, sometimes sometimes children were beaten and that's just part of life. Yeah. You know, I think in Sansa's case, it's for me, it's not even so much the idea of, you know, well, this is how you discipline a child. It's probably more just how pervasive it was to beat women in general sure. <laughs> right yeah, yeah. um so the idea that if your wife the person that you are you know intimately connected to uh, gets out of line then that's how you handle it you know you assert that kind of patriarchal right. control and you know the first time it happens to sansa um it's in the earlier chapters you know um toward the end of of game of thrones where you know it's the first time the knight comes in and on joffrey's command slaps her you know hits her in the face right and she is so shocked by that i think because that kind of violence was not a part of her upbringing it was not a part of her childhood um at least not directed toward the stark children you know certainly she grows up in an extremely violent world 
um, but not, you know, as a kind of a disciplinary mechanism. Um, and then I think the other shocking thing for her is that you're a knight. You're supposed to be chivalrous. Mm, yeah. Um, this is not how you treat a lady. I am a lady. Um, and, and certainly this command is not supposed to be coming from my valiant prince. Right. So I think there, you know, there's a lot going on there. It's a really yeah. harsh and of course, awakening. Yeah, of course we know that Joffrey's a budding abuser, right? Yes. So he, this, we don't know, I don't think we are aware of what he is absolutely capable of yet at this point in the story. Right. Um, she's learning, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, she's, she's learning, learning a lot of things. Um, yes. Anyway, let me let me jump into the synopsis, and then we can talk a little bit more about um, whatever you want to talk about. All right, so okay, I have notes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you so, know, I have notes. <laughs> Sansa reflects on the meaning of the comet, the political upheaval between North and South, and the bruises on her arms. Sir Eris Oakhart escorts her to the tournament for Joffrey's name day, and tells her that Tywin has retained his army at Harrenhal rather than coming to King's Landing. After a few rounds, a drunken knight named Dantos arrives half-naked and fails even to mount his horse. Joffrey, angered by the display, orders for the man to be drowned in a cask of wine. Sansa objects and tricks Joffrey into making Dantos his fool. You can't! What did you say? Did you say I can't? I only meant... It would be bad luck to kill a man on your name day. What kind of stupid peasant superstition? The girl is right. When a man serves on his name day, he reaps all year. Take him away. I'll have him killed tomorrow, the fool. Common gets a chance to ride against a straw man. (laughs) That is when Tyrion arrives. I just got a mental picture. Yeah. That is when Tyrion arrives. Behind him is an odd assortment of sellswords and brutes. He greets Tommen and Marcella warmly, offers his condolences to Sansa, and calls Sander a cur. Joffrey asks him if he brought a gift. Tyrion says, yes, my wits. (laughs) So, Jan Wilson, I've asked you to bring either an observation and or a question to the table What did you bring to the table? Well, let's maybe start with the observation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she is so young. I think we forget, you Mm -hmm. know, especially in the books, just how young she is. She's 11 when the story starts. I think she's 12. I think she's 12. At this point. Yeah. And she's a child. You know, she is a child. And yet, in rereading this, and again, you know, I'm so happy that I had the opportunity just to kind of sit down and look at Sansa, you know, Mm -hmm. just kind of on her own. Um, I think she's a character who can blend in at times, which is kind of part of the point. We'll maybe come back to that. But um, just in kind of rereading her chapters, I am struck by how strong she is. Yeah. Just this kind of quiet strength and composure that is, is quite astonishing, you know, for someone her age. I was comparing, you know, here we have a tourney, um, you know, we have a tourney early on in Game of Thrones, where we start kind of learning more about Sansa's character. And she's sitting at this first tourney, which mm-hmm. of course is the tourney for the hand, right? Yeah. When she first arrives at King's Landing. And she's sitting next to Jane Poole, her very good friend. 
and the first knight is killed at that earlier tourney Mm. and Jane just falls apart right (laughs) they have to kind of escort her away she's hysterical and Sansa at 11 years old isn't crying she's not screaming a man is bleeding out right in front of her and she's just kind of thinking oh that's sad um, it's sad that songs will not be sung for him, right? She's, she's, right. she's so calm in that moment. And, you know, that line about how, as Jane is being carried away, Sansa is made of sterner stuff. And I thought, <laughs> what a neat foreshadowing. I know you've covered this chapter, you know, with, with uh, in your podcast yeah, earlier, but yeah. that line about she's made of sterner stuff. And so if you think about what she's doing during this tourney, she has that same kind of strength, but she's displaying it now in different ways. And she knows what she's up against. Yeah. Um, she knows how dangerous her situation is. And yet she, again, has composure. Uh, she's clear-headed. She's keeping her thoughts to herself. Um, I love her internal dialogue. Um, she's thinking to herself what she really feels and yeah. really wants yeah, to yeah. say, but what comes out of her mouth is extremely wise and diplomatic until and it's I, not and then she kind of has to talk her way out of it right and then she pulls back you know she's still right. at moments things will slip out yeah. <laughs> but even that she's able to pull back at um, one you know, point joffrey will give her a look yeah. and she thinks, oh let me kind of sugarcoat this in a right. way where he won't know what i mean at what she's walking a, a really thin line um oh yes at one point, she says, a lady's armor is her courtesy. Yes. Right? And I think that she knows she's learning to play the game, right? She's yes. learning, like, these men, at least in public, have to act as if they are men of court, right? In, in the back rooms, they can do whatever they want. But in public, if I lean this way, they're going to have to lean that way. Yes, because I so I'm going to I'm going to I know how to do this because I've read my stories and I know what courtesy is. You know, I've Septimordain taught me lessons about this. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and so she's able in public, she's able to handle herself pretty well. But from time to time, she will. It's almost you see a little bit of her inner world come to the surface. Yes. And there are a couple times in this chapter where. She can't help herself. She's like she she could hear herself saying something. She knows she can't. She shouldn't say. Don't say it, right? But she can't stop herself from saying things. And she she saves Dantos's life. Yes, uh, because there's something deeper. There's something more integral to her than just the courtesy, right? Yes. There's something about justice that bubbles up. Like you can't. That's not fair. He is a fool. You're so clever to see it. He'll make a much better fool than a knight. He doesn't deserve the mercy of a quick death. Did you hear, my lady, Sodontas? From this day, you'll be my new fool. Thank you, Your Grace. And you, my lady, thank you. Anyway, I love this idea that a woman's armor, or a lady's armor, is her courtesy. I was, I kept thinking of that line too, Anthony, and it, it, it just shows again how clever the writing and the character development are, because yeah. if you, again, go back to early Sansa, um, obviously very idealistic, very naive, mm-hmm. as she should be. She's, again, a child. She's been raised in um, a world of privilege. 
right? Yeah. Everything that she does and says is validated, right? She embodies what a lady should be in this world. And so she's never had to deviate from that. And so all of those words, all of those lessons, you know, one mm -hmm. of her greatest strengths is that she listens and she's absorbed all of those lessons thinking that those lessons will be applied one way. And then when the world around her shifts so dramatically, she is just brilliantly, I think, able to take those lessons and apply them in a different situation. Right. And so the meaning of, you know, a lady's armor is her courtesy. That means something very different at the beginning of the first book than it will mean in this context. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I love that shift. You know, I love her ability to adapt those lessons to her current circumstances. Something that I, I don't think Ned ever really learned to do, by the way. I, I just kept comparing her to Ned right. as I went through this chapter, thinking she is amazing in her ability to take these ideas, this idea of virtue, you know, this idea mm -hmm. of um, you know, being a lady, being polite, and use that as a strength instead of right. using that to, you know, kind of further enable this world, you know, that that puts her in a certain position in a certain place. It becomes one of her greatest strengths. And if you think about what armor is, it's like the hard exterior, right? Yeah. Whereas I think before she thought courtesy or courtly manners are something that you should hold deep down in your heart, right? Yes. <laughs> that's something I'm going to that's something that's sort of core to my being and all the other knights at court will be the same way, right? Cuz that's yes. what that's what defines a knight is what's deep down in their heart, those chivalrous and their men of honor. She's learned that that's absolutely not true. <laughs> yeah, in the worst way. Right. So then what she's decided to do is I'm going to weaponize Yes, I wrote that word down. Yes, I'm going to weaponize courtesy to my benefit, and yes, it's it's sort of a different way to survive than Arya, who you know we just met in the previous chapter on on the road. She sort of adopted a gendered disguise, right? Yes, and of course, yes. because of that, Arya has to actually fight people. <laughs> she, right, she has to actually physically fight them, and of course, Sansa is fighting in a different way in in a lot of ways she's in more peril because there's no adult in the room that's on her side at least not yet right she is so that's the other thing that really struck me how isolated she yes. is she doesn't have any of the kind of supports right that that maybe some of the other characters have who are also in great danger but she is completely alone here and that's the other kind of remarkable thing I think about Sansa is she starts to learn not only how to play the game mm -hmm. by being courteous, by not speaking, right? Mm -hmm. we, we tend to associate power and agency with action, with speaking, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, with being bold. And she really complicates and challenges, you know, our traditional ideas of what, what power is. And that word you used, weaponize, right? This was kind of a second big point for me she really weaponizes that traditional femininity and right. uses it as strength, something that is supposed to keep her weak, right? Something that is supposed to keep her inferior. The idea is she's just a woman. Uh -huh. Well, fine. I will take that role and I will again, use it as strength. I will use it as a way to survive. And this, this idea of flattery, you know, anytime Joffrey does or says something, <laughs> yeah. she, she flatters him, but she does it in a way that she, 
clearly knows how ridiculous he is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he usually is kind of too stupid to pick up on that. That's right. Um, she does that several times in this chapter and as you know, the book goes on. But yeah, I just kept thinking about how there are so many different definitions of strength and it's not always through a sword. Right. That gets the most glory. Sure. I think in our tales, um, we yeah. love Arya. We love Brienne. Uh, we love those who you know pick up the sword and fight. But she's displaying a very different kind of strength that I don't think always gets the the recognition and, and validation it should. Yeah, I think that I think that you could easily watch if you were just like a show watcher. You might just move out of those first few seasons and think, well, poor Sansa. Or maybe you don't like her because, like, you know, she she's horrible to Arya or whatever. Um, I think after reading the first book and reading this first chapter, I think she's certainly smarter than Joffrey. And oh, yes. she's certainly learned some lessons. She's She's playing the game in a different way. I mean, I do feel sympathy for her for, for sure. But I think that she, ha- you know, Tyrion shows up and says, uh, you know, I- I'm bringing my wits with me. <laughs> she she has her wits about her. Yes. And I think I think you read that differently in the book than I think you read that on the uh, at least for the first few seasons of the show. Right. No, I agree. You know, we with the books, of course, we have insight into her internal monologue in ways that we don't get. Mm as overtly anyway in the show. And so um, I think there probably is a divide in terms of those who just watched the show and those who both mm. watched the show and read the books, maybe in terms of how they feel about Sansa, because that was actually one of the questions I had for you, Anthony, is why do you think Sansa gets so much hate? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I'm the there, right person there was to so ask. so much vitriol, you know, directed at this character. <laughs> I'm the and... right person to ask because I, I was a late adopter to Sansa. Um, okay, well then, that's let's start there. Then, yeah. Like, why did you initially dislike her, or um, yeah, was it actual kind of vitriol, or was it just more like she's not interesting? I think it was because um, I think the the books are teaching me to root for Arya. Yeah. Like I, I think in my in the last podcast I said something like. Um, Arya has to live under Sansa's shadow, and it's almost like when she gets out from under that shadow, the shadow's like a cocoon, and now she can become a butterfly. But, of course, that's from Arya's perception of these things. Yeah. And then even when I see things, even if I see the world from Sansa's perspective, it's like, how can you be so stupid not to see what Joffrey really is? Or how could you side with Joffrey over and against your own sister? You know, there, yeah. there are a few there are a few things early on in the first book that kind of teach you that this world of courtesy is like a facade, yeah, and that Sans is bought into the facade. But of course, Arya is living a more authentic life or something, or she's more true to herself or something like that. Yeah. Um, it took me a while to actually come around to think, well, Sans is doing everything she's been taught to do, yeah. And she's still a child, even though that Arya evinces childhood in a different way. Sansa is every bit the child. And what should she have done differently, given the situation? Yeah. I I really had to kind of dive into sort of a deeper level 
and kind of leave the perception game be, beside, just, you know, put it to the side just a little bit to actually see the world from Sansa's perspective. I think that that was sort of my initial aversion to Sansa. No, I, I totally understand that. And um, that's one of the reasons I'm so glad that, that you know, George Martin decided to give Sansa point of view chapters in that first book, because mm. I think it would be much worse if she didn't have, you know, point of view chapters, then we would only be getting, you know, Arya's perspective. Right. And I think you're right, you know, especially in multiple reads, you kind of go back and think, really, what else could Sansa do when her entire upbringing, you know, was was being kind of channeled into this idea that your role is this. This yes. is what a proper lady does. This is how you grow up and marry a prince. And that should be your ambition. And, um, you know, she is very much swept away by the stories. And it, it does take longer for her to, it, it really takes this horrible execution of her father in front of her very eyes. Right. You know, she says, I couldn't look away. Why couldn't I look away? I actually witnessed his head coming off of his body. Right. And that for her is, everything comes tumbling down right in that moment and of course again you know looking back as either book readers or show watchers oh my goodness child why why couldn't you see this sooner joffrey's horrible but again you know she really has this very again closed off perspective of what life should be because that's how she was raised and you know i i do feel sympathy for that i think the other thing too having i'm the youngest of two older sisters. So there are three of us. Mm. And I also started thinking about just birth order when I was thinking about (laughs) Sansa and Arya. And certainly, yes, if you read through Arya chapters, it's, oh, Sansa's so perfect. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Sansa this and Sansa that. But you can also see, I think at times, there are hints of this, that Sansa is kind of jealous of Arya's freedom. Um, There's a scene in Game of Thrones um, where... Um, Arya's coming in, she's been playing, you know, she's filthy, she hasn't changed her clothes in a couple of days, and Ned walks into the room, and Sansa thinks, oh, Ned will scold her for showing up to the castle looking like this, and what does Ned do? Pats her on the head, hugs her, and sends her away, Uh (laughs) and you can see Sansa resentful of that, and there are little hints throughout, right, where you do get the sense that Sansa thinks, why does Arya have this kind of freedom? Yeah. And then I am just expected, right, to to behave in a certain way. So I think there's tension maybe on both sides. And, you know, I often think of my sister, Jill, who's the middle child. Perfect child. <laughs> I love her dearly. We didn't really have sibling rivalry uh-huh. like, you know, Sans and Arya uh, do. But um, she was just every expectation, right? She, very feminine, very, you know, obedient, uh, just everything that you would want from, you know, your perfect child. And I was always kind of the more free spirit and I was the rough and tumble one and Mm. kind of the tomboy. I would go to an wolf's blood. I did, you know, family reunions, (laughs) Jill would be sitting politely playing, you know, on a blanket with the other kids and I'd be in the Creek just getting filthy Mm -hmm. from head to toe. (laughs) So I was kind of the Arya and she was kind of the Sansa. And so I think if you are the youngest child, there is that kind of, well, we've raised the perfect child. Now the third one, we still love her, but 
she's, we can allow her to kind of be more of the free spirit, right? We're not going to be quite as strictured in our, you know, you know, how we, how we bring her up. And I got by with so much more than my older sisters did because I was the baby. Um, Uh, And I, people kind of encouraged me in my recklessness. So I think there's some of that going on too, you know, with these sisters, I really think that birth order had shifted, you know, things might've been different. Mm -hmm. So Sans is just expected to be the perfect child. And you child. almost see that with Rickon, too. Rickon's allowed to run wild. Right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, there's also a there's also a family resemblance issue that's going on between them. Oh, yeah. I think that for Ned, and you see that in one of the chapters in the first book where he says, you look like Liana. Mm-hmm. And she had the wolf's blood, and you have the wolf's blood. Yeah, And for the very first time, Arya realizes, oh my gosh, I might be pretty because everyone talks about Lyanna as this great beauty. Yeah, And I've only ever thought of myself as Arya Horseface. Horseface. Right? <laughs> and yes, so because that... Sansa's the pretty one, yes. right? So she was always kind of That's juxtaposed right. against Sonya. Yeah, and Sansa. I, and I think that there's something about Ned that thinks... I see my sister in Arya. So I'm yes. going to let whatever rules she breaks, I'm going to forgive. Because that's kind of yes. what my sister did. Whereas Sansa is being taught the rules of femininity and, you know, of sort of the social class and whatnot. And she's obeying the rules. Yes. And she can't get away with the kinds of stuff that Arya gets away with. And I, I think that does, that does bring a little bit of resentment. I think you can see hints of it for sure. You know, you have to really kind of look for it, but I, I do think it's there. And I think there probably are many times where, you know, Sansa, even if it's not something kind of overtly acknowledged in her own mind, there probably is this kind of mm. jealousy about how maybe I would enjoy just kind of breaking free and running through the woods and, and just throwing caution to the wind right. and doing whatever I want, yeah, but yeah. I can't do that because I'm Sansa. Right. And I'm the one who's supposed to be the future queen and, you know, all of these expectations that people have for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I sympathize, I think with, with both of them, I, I definitely see where they're both coming from because I just compare that to my sisters and me. Right. Yeah. That's, that's man, that's interesting. Now, she does, we, we said that, you know, she has to kind of figure out how to navigate this world because she's isolated, right? Yes. There are a couple of hints, though, that there are, there there might be adults in the room who are looking out for her in this chapter. And I wanted to ask you, Anthony, yeah. what is it about Sansa that makes people genuinely want to help her and i know dantos right she saves dantos's life but the hound for example such an interesting relationship Uh those two develop and and Tyrion is is so sympathetic to her and you know little finger we know he has ulterior motives but she just draws people to her yeah yeah and she's smart enough to figure out you know even in this chapter she knows Tyrion's being nice to her but she's developed a cynicism now where maybe before oh he's just being nice now she's questioning why he's being nice so she's definitely getting smarter and playing the game but she also knows that okay if he is being nice to me how can i use that to my advantage huh so you know what is what do you think is really drawing even early on 
uh, why are people drawn? Why are people to drawn to Sansa? Well, if I was gonna be totally cynical, people in this world view her as a political asset. Mm. Even the Hound. I don't know. Like, I think that there's something about maybe not the Hound. There's something very primal about attractive people. Yeah. Where they get things that other people don't get. <laughs> I was thinking that too. In that general. might be the most immediate thing. She's pretty. Right. It's and like, my... people are drawn to her because she's so attractive. Yeah. Especially with men. Especially men that want to help her. There's something about her looks that, that's a part yeah. of that. I also think that there's something about the fact that she's a political asset. I do think that there's something like, if this war goes well, we are going to wipe out the Starks. We're going to marry Sansa to a Lannister, and this is absolutely going to help us rule the North, right? Yeah. So there's part of that. With the Hound, it's probably different. I think that there might be some attraction there, as gross as that might be. And I think that there is something about her. Like, he always early on, he would always call her a little bird, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep singing, little bird. They, you know, keep singing all the songs that they taught you to sing. I think that he's smart enough to see that she's now figured out how to survive. And even there's that one point in this chapter where she blurts out, "No, you can't kill him." And Joffrey's like, "Are you telling me the king can't do something the king wants to do?" <laughs> and she comes up with this idea off the top of her head. Which, you know, very, very clever, very clever. Uh, it's, you know, it's bad luck, it's bad luck on your name day to, to you, you know, wait, you know, you, you can't do it today. And immediately the hound steps in almost like, you know, like an improv, <laughs> you know, he's like a yes and to her lie that she's telling. Yeah. And says, oh, yeah, it's known. You can't you can't do it. It's, it's what you what you sow on your name day, you will reap all year long. I think that he likes the idea that she is playing with him. I think that he likes that there's someone in the room that's that's a little bit smarter than him, that's going to kind of expose him for being the fool that he is. Yeah. I think he likes that about her. <laughs> and I think Tyrion comes to like that about her as well. You know, those, those private looks they give each other, especially mm. after they're married, you know, those inside jokes. But... Do you think there is also, and I, I'm still trying to kind of parse through how I feel about this. I keep thinking about, you know, Tyrion's line, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for um, cripples, bastards, and broken mm, things. Mm. And I think it, for me, it might be that the Hound and, and Tyrion certainly, you know, to an extent, they see her as so vulnerable. And, you know, I keep thinking about that moment where the Hound tells Sansa how he was burned. Yeah. And he has never shared that. He has never made himself vulnerable right. like that. And then, of course, he has to cover up and say, if you tell anyone, I will kill you. Um, so anytime he's kind of soft with her, he always has to then act, as she would say, despicable. Right. Why are you so despicable? Yeah, because why, he has to maintain that yeah, front, right? Yeah. Why does he why does he get vulnerable with her kind of despite himself? I think that he knows that she's in a nest of vipers. Right. Right. He sees how even early on, you know, even before Ned is beheaded and she's held captive, but especially after that, you know, do you remember that scene? We referred to this where 
uh, she's beaten for the first time and mm. Joffrey commands her to come to court right after her father dies. And she learns very early on, if I say what I think, I'm going to suffer the penalty for it. I won't survive this way. And it's right. really the hound who helps her come to that conclusion by saying, there's nothing you can do. Play the game, right? Yeah, Don't he ever says, speak your yeah, mind. Says, or what does he say to her exactly? She says, what does he want from me? And he says, he wants you to keep doing what you're doing. He wants you to sing these little songs that you've been singing. He wants yes. you to act like his lady love. Play along. Play along. Yeah. This is how you survive. That's how you survive. And she keeps coming back to his words. You know, mm. the hound said, don't say what you're thinking. You know, play the game. Just <laughs> be the person he wants you to be. And she even thinks of that in this chapter. Like when she yep. blurts out a couple things, oh, pull back, pull back. Pull because back. that's how I survive. And so he jumps yeah. in then and, you know, helps her do that. And so I, I, I don't know. I just keep thinking that maybe he sees you know, the idea that he, he hates to see somebody like her abused, uh-huh. right? Somebody who is so much more helpless, like he was with his brother. Um, and then, of course, Tyrion, you know, obviously knows what it's like to feel helpless right. and bullied and, you know, to be beaten down well, and, and not she's, be able to defend herself. She's not herself. a cripple or a bastard, but she presents she's as a broken, a broken thing, thing right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that he very much taps into that and sympathizes with that, right. you know, very early on. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. For Prestige, me and Aaron are still extending our Shogun Afterglow with part three of our discussion of the 1980s TV miniseries. Last week absolutely shocked our sensibilities with Lord Toronaga doing the tango. What delights and horrors will await us this week? Then for Pulp, this Friday join us for our latest prep session for House of the Dragon Season 2 as we take another look at the key differences between the text of Fire and Blood and the on-screen action for Season 1, and what they mean for the characters, story, and setting. Get your Valerian steel sharpened for the new season. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Now, I do want to talk about someone who's not in this chapter, but I think looms over this chapter, and that's Cersei. Ah, uh, yes. I noticed in this chapter that everyone in this world is simply assuming that the Lannisters are in power. You have first Eris Oakhart, who's basically saying um, the comet represents, you know, the king's. <laughs> it's the king's comet, and she's like, "Yeah, but if it was the king's comet, shouldn't it be gold?" Mm-hmm. That's what she's thinking. But, of course, he's thinking, oh, it's Lannister Red. Isn't that interesting? So it's almost like, again, Robert Baratheon's dead, and the true power in this realm is Cersei, and the Cersei's a Lannister, right? Right. And then you have Tommen, when he's going to tilt against the Quintain, 
you know, he shouts Casterly Rock, right? Yeah. He, he doesn't shout like Storm's End or King's Landing or something like that. Tommen is absolutely a Lannister, right? <laughs> yes. Both literally, but also th- the realm has decided that they're going to lean into the Lannister politic because Robert's gone and there's no pretense anymore of yeah. pretending that the, the Baratheons are in power. Even so much so is that the, the Quintain is dressed up like the it's a, it's a leather dummy, you know, stuffed with straw and Tommen's going to tilt against it. Yes. It has the, the antlers yeah. of House Baratheon. So you almost see that everyone is sort of leaning into this we are now on Lannister turf, and Sansa notices, or she mentions to, I guess she just thinks to herself, Sansa's thinking, is Cersei going to be at the tournament? Because if she's there, I know Joffrey will behave. Right. And she's dismayed to find out. Yes. Yeah. Even though she no longer trusts Cersei, because Cersei's a Lannister. She knows that Joffrey will be brought to heel by his mother's presence. Right. And I think everyone in this story knows that Cersei is the real power and that Joffrey's kind of the face of the institution. Right. Yeah, I I totally agree. I was so struck by all of the, just the overt Lannister symbols and references. It's like everybody's still kind of pretending that it's a Baratheon thing, but everybody knows, Like, right? not even almost even... I mean, I think that if they were going to, like, say, of course, it's, you know, Joffrey Baratheon, we know that he's a Baratheon, but but every, all the symbols and everything that people are saying are really trying to kiss up to the Lannisters. Yes. Like, yes. even when Tyrion comes to court, and we should talk about Tyrion. <laughs> I love Tyrion. Even when Tyrion comes to court, he says, where's your mother? You know that that's where he's headed. He's he knows that that the that the mother is where the power is. Yes. Um, yes. And of course, I I wanted to give you a chance to talk about. I know that you love Tyrion. Boy, can he make an entrance, right? Yes. <laughs> Going back just a second, though. Yeah. Um, it's in. Oh, I I don't think it's in this chapter. It's in in one of the chapters in the book in in a Clash of Kings where. Um, is, is it, I'm sorry, Anthony, I can't remember whose point of view it is in the book, but uh, discussing how decisions are made in the throne room. Hmm. Do you remember this chapter? And no. Cersei is really the one who calls the shots, right? And then once in a while, Joffrey, you know, who looks completely bored, I think this is actually in a Game of Thrones where Sansa first comes to court. And, you know, Joffrey's sitting on the throne. He looks completely bored. He doesn't care about what they're discussing or who is coming to speak before him. So Cersei's just making all of the decisions about what will happen. And then Joffrey will kind of perk up and notice that things are happening without him and say, oh, but I'm going to decide the punishment for this person. Cut off his hand. Mm. So, And they have to kind of give in, right? Because we have to make Joffrey think he's in charge. And this becomes even more apparent, of course, when Tywin comes in. And, you know, those first couple moments where Joffrey tries to challenge Tywin, it's very apparent uh, that it's really in in lip service only uh, that Joffrey is the king and that it's really Tywin, you know, running the show. But Tyrion, you know, Tyrion serves that role and he and Cersei 
uh, yes. throughout the rest of this book really jockey for power and control and and play the game against each other and try to get one up on each other. And that relationship is actually one of my favorites it, in the series. Yes, it's fantastic. I, I love, like I said, no one can make an entrance like Tyrion. <laughs> love him, love him. And it's almost like you see at the end of this chapter a shift in power. Everyone in the chapter is assuming that Cersei is has all of the power, right? And then if as soon as Tyrion shows up, there's almost you can almost feel the thing tilt, right? It's yes. like, oh, interesting. Uh, now we have a new hand of the king. And the question is, who is going to be Tywin's mouthpiece, right? Yes. <laughs> and of course, because Tywin has this view of his sons. Uh, over and against his daughter. Yes, yes. She she's had she's enjoyed a little bit of a little bit of power and now she's going to have to almost go back to using courtesy as armor like she's done her whole life. And I love that chapter following this one because it's that first confrontation, right? Between yep. Tyrion and Cersei and and that's I think you're right. Cersei really has to, in that moment, reckon with the idea of, okay, now Tyrion's here. The game has to be played differently. Yes, yes. And the first thing he says to her is, father had to send me because clearly you are just messing this up. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, he doesn't make any pretense of that. And then just confronts her with the whole Jamie thing. And it's just, it's so well written. Oh, and it's gosh. so clever how these two go at each other. I love it um, whenever Tyrion gets a chance to... <laughs> interact with a member of his family i know it's so different he deals with his immediate family so differently and there's even difference within the family like he'll take a different voice with jamie than he does with cersei than he does with tywin uh than he does with marcella than he does with joffrey it's it's all very authentic but you don't get to see that voice in Tyrion unless he is working within the interior of his family and yes, if we go back to this chapter with Joffrey, right, where yeah. he comes in, and I was so struck by, you know, again, Sansa's armor is her courtesy. Right. You know, she even repeats that line on my page 37, um, where, um, well, a little, a couple lines before then, where, you know, Tyrion saunters in, he's got all of his, you know, mm-hmm. motley crew with him, and if her armor is courtesy, his is sarcasm and Joffrey rarely picks up on either. Right. And <laughs> I think so you're right. when he, just a few lines here, I just laughed out loud when I read this again, uh, because he tells Sansa, I'm sorry for your loss. And she knows immediately, was he mocking her? Mm. Right. She mm. picks up immediately. Is he being sarcastic? Is he not? And then he looks at Joffrey. I'm sorry for your loss as well, Joffrey. What loss? Your royal father, a large, fierce man with a black beard. Right. Don't recall him if you drop. Yeah. He was king before you. And then he goes on to. You know, Joffrey um, says, oh, him. Yeah, well, that oh, was really him. sad. He was killed by a boar. <laughs> and then what does Tyrion say? Is that what they say, your grace? <laughs> so Tyrion already has it figured out. Mm-hmm. He knows who killed Robert. He knows Joffrey has not figured out any of this right yeah. joffrey is completely excluded from the game he's just a pawn in that game so but he's able to slip in these things and use them to his advantage because Tyrion doesn't have physical strength although he's a pretty good warrior at times you forget you mm-hmm. know he actually does pretty well um but his strength has always been his ability to be clever and say clever things and to know how to play the game and his his 
ability to use humor in the right moments and say things just overtly to people, but say them in a way kind of like Sansa does say them in a way where he's got certainly one meaning, but they pick up on it. And he does that quite a bit here through this, you know, through this chapter. Absolutely. I'm just going to read this paragraph. This is him entering. And this is all from Sansa's (laughs) perspective, right? In their midst, riding a tall red horse was a strange high saddle that cradled him back in front was the queen's dwarf brother, Tyrion Lannister, the one they called the imp. He had let his beard grow to cover his pushed-in face until it was a bristly tangle of yellow and black hair, coarse as wire. Down his back flowed a shadowskin cloak, black fur striped with white. He held the reins in his left hand and carried his right arm in a white silk sling but otherwise looked as grotesque as Sansa remembered from when he had visited Winterfell. With his bulging brow and mismatched eyes, he was still the ugliest man she had ever chanced to look upon. (laughs) Every now and again, I don't see Peter Dinklage. (laughs) And it takes a passage like that for me not to see Dinklage when I'm reading Tyrion. Yeah. I've mentioned this on the pod before, but it was a long time ago that I mentioned it, and I'll mention it to you. In the ancient world, there was a practice of pseudoscience called physiognomy, which you probably Mm -hmm. are very well aware of. Yeah. And the idea with physiognomy is that you could tell either the virtues or vices of a man's soul by how they looked on the surface. Yeah. And fundamental to that practice, and there's a lot of writing about this, is the idea that the eyes are the window to the soul. And we, we even, you know, that, that phrase survives into the modern world. Right. We have notions of like, does he have beady eyes? Because you can't trust guys with beady eyes and things like that. Tyrion's eyes are absolutely a social disability for him. That would be my argument. Mm-hmm. If the eyes reveal something about your character and you have one green eye and one black eye, those mismatched eyes are going to appear sinister to someone with a more ancient sensibility. Right. And it's such a crucial part of how Tyrion has to negotiate the world around him. He looks devious. (laughs) Right? It doesn't matter what his character actually is. He, you could tell what's deep down in his soul just by looking at his eyeballs. Yeah. And I think Sansa's coming to realize that maybe looks aren't all that they seem, but I don't think she's quite there yet. I don't think she is either. You know, obviously that's just a a really dominant trope, right? Throughout literature and, and into this day where... You know, one's character is represented by one's outward appearance. Mm. And so if you have something grotesque, right, that is a person to be feared or a person to be hated or a person who is unworthy. And and certainly the people in Martin's world adopt that point of view. You know, you and I were just talking about how if you're attractive, that gives you a huge advantage. Yes. Um, People tend to equate your attractiveness with your goodness, um, with Mm. wanting to do good things for you. Um, and if you are somebody like Tyrion, right, it's almost like you have a social contagion. Yes. Um, either you're 
somebody who is sinister or you are somebody who might just by touching you, you remember how many times Cersei just flinches from his touch. <laughs> it's almost like he'll, you know, give her some disease just by touching her. So there is I like definitely the, that, that phrase. What did you say? Social contagion? Social contagion, yes. right? Yes. And so I think, you know, again, though, what's so beautiful about Martin is that he takes that trope and just turns it on its head. (laughs) Some of the most grotesque characters are those that we end up sympathizing the most with and not because we feel pity, but because they do such incredible things. Right. Um, I'm thinking of that line with, um, with Kat when she first meets Brienne and her first reaction to Brienne is to feel pity. Do you Uh remember? She says, there's nothing more pitiful than an unattractive woman. And then look at what Brienne goes on to accomplish, right? Sure. The Hound, another great example, right? We're, we've been taught that somebody with a burned face is the villain. And, you know, the Hound, we come to realize, um, is is much more complicated than that. So I, I love that complication. But I also love the idea that somebody like Tyrion, who does feel, he would never admit this to most people, but does feel very deeply right how he has been treated and marginalized simply for how he looks he yeah. carries this with him constantly you know especially after my goodness the the, the battle of blackwater bay when he loses his nose yeah um which you know the show does not portray he gets the big scar but you know clearly he doesn't lose the nose right um so he it does sting him you know every time somebody put, pulls away from him or a child cries or if they, they call him the imp right or if they he, call him the he imp. does not like that name right doesn't like it but how does he he weaponizes it again mm-hmm. right he takes what is supposed to be his greatest weakness and he uses it to empower himself right and he's able to, i was thinking about this you know some of the most successful characters in game of thrones are those who typically in any other story you would look at and say weakness vulnerability Mm -hmm. and they use that for strength they're able to turn that around and say actually this is what allows me to do what i'm doing or it's 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 the foundation on which i will build strengths and or those who aren't able to perform you know masculinity Mm -hmm. um, or femininity in Mm -hmm. ways um, that are entirely expected they're able to to you know uh, combine you know some of those best traits so like yeah. Tyrion can't fight physically most of the time but he has these tremendous wits even though he is embodied in a male you know body mm-hmm. um you know Sansa again people constantly underestimate her because they think she's weak and small and pretty she won't be a threat you know how many times does Cersei call her stupid uh Joffrey keeps saying my mother thinks you're stupid right okay yeah. great uh, keep thinking I'm stupid. That only works in my favor because you won't see me coming. Um, everybody is just completely, you know, shocked when they think that Sans is involved in Joffrey's assassination. Uh-huh. We never saw that coming, uh-huh. even though, of course, she had nothing to do with it. But I, I really like, you know, it, Bran, another great example. You and I have talked about Bran. Um, you know, here is somebody who his entire life he was told, you grow up, you're a man. You go on to do these manly things, whether that's yeah, he wants being to be the lord knight, of a castle right? or you're part of the king's guard. That yeah. was his dream. And he shattered it first when he realizes I can no longer do what I completely expected to be able to do based on my gender and based on my class and you know, based yeah. on these things. But what does he do? Right. He takes that and he turns it around. 
um, and really defies those expectations. So those are those are some of my favorite characters. Right. Um, those who are able to adapt um, and and use their strengths and develop their strengths in other areas. You know, those those are really the survivors in this story. Yes, I feel like with Tyrion in particular, his disability. I mean, I guess I'm calling it a a disability. I'm thinking about this really the social aspects yes. of it. Yes, he's in this world. He is very disabled. Physiologically, you could debate whether or not he should be thought of as disabled or not. Right. Mm-hmm. Socially, he wears it on his face like no one else wears it on his face right 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 um the hound wears something else on his face but it's almost like there's more shame attached to that for him yeah um i and bitterness right yeah deep bitterness they both have a similar aspect it's almost like Tyrion's physiological presentation represents his father's shame Mm mm-hmm I think that the hound's burnt face is his own shame because I don't feel like his his older brother who actually did burn him feels any remorse for that at all. I don't think his older brother cares it, one bit about his younger brother. Right. So I feel like the it's an interesting thing to put those two in the same room and you know they, they clearly don't get along, right? Yeah. But they both have to walk around the world with the faces that th- that they've been given. Right. They they don't they have to come face to face with people wherever they go and they wear their history on their face. Yes. And going back to your point about eyes, you know, I was really struck with how um, Sansa, you know, this again shows how perceptive she is. Because as she gets to know the hound more, mm. right? At first, of course, he terrifies her, mm-hmm. right? She looks at his face. Oh, he's burned. He's huge. He's scary. And then the more she interacts with him, she begins to realize, I'm not bothered at all by his face. It's right. what's in his eyes. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And she says, it's his eyes that scare me because they are so angry and they are so haunted <laughs> and right. they are so resentful and bitter right that as understandable as that is uh given how traumatized he was as Hmm. a child Hmm. and so you know first time she meets peter baelish right little finger um he's able to fool most people but she looks at his eyes yeah the first time at that first tourney and she says he was very handsome he had a very well-groomed appearance but his eyes and the very next line is she felt uneasy huh and so those eyes, right? They, yeah. We keep kind of coming back to that, what they reveal about a character, uh-huh. their vulnerability, how other people see them, I, I think is so significant. And I think what Sansa's the lesson she absolutely has learned is it doesn't matter what you look like on the surface. You could be a monster underneath, right? Yes. She yes. learned that with Joffrey. Yes. I don't think that she's learned that the opposite might, the reverse also might be true. It could be that you might look grotesque on the surface, but deep down you might be a good person. I think she might be starting to see that in the Hound. I think that she might be starting to see that in Tyrion, but I don't think she's quite there yet. Right. She's she's definitely learning. You know, she says several times, how could I have ever thought Joffrey was handsome? Mm, mm-hmm. So he looks the same. Right. Yeah. But now <laughs> right. he appears to her grotesque. Mm-hmm. This 
opposite occurs with the hound, mm -hmm. right? What at first appeared to be grotesque is now I'm not afraid of him at all. Yeah. Because I'm beginning to learn that underneath this exterior, we have a person who is vulnerable. You know, we have a person who can be kind, who can show mercy. Right. It's interesting that the hound is the only one who doesn't beat her. Right. And Joffrey never, I don't think Joffrey even asks him to. Huh. I wonder why that is. I was thinking about that. Do you think it's because he knows the hound would just openly defy him <laughs> and he doesn't want to lose face? I don't um, I, know. I think that there's maybe there's something about the hound that he he knows he kind of goes his own way sometimes. Yeah, because the hound, too, will say things to Joffrey that nobody else could right. get by with. Right, right, right. And it's it's interesting that he does get by with it. Sure, um, sure. And Sansa is usually the only one who picks up on it. You know, she'll look at him like, wow, I can't believe you just said that. Right. And then people just kind of move on. It, it's quite interesting what he's able to do and say. That's right. That other knights certainly would not and could not say. I mean, look at poor Dantos, right? Right. He just wants a cup of wine and Joffrey's going to kill him. <laughs> I, I want to mention something I just learned the other day. I was on Aaron's podcast and he told me something about Dantos I never knew before. And maybe you know this already, but... Is it his backstory? It's his backstory. Yeah, with the Mad King. He seems to... Yes, you're right. He yeah. seems to be the last member of a house that has been completely wiped out because Tywin has decided... He wants to commit genocide of this entire family. Right. And then, of course, Barrison the Bull says, you know, there's this 12-year-old kid. He had nothing to do with it. You have to grant me this boon. Let this boy live. Right. His entire line, his family, is all... I mean, you kind of now see, like, this is why this guy's been drinking himself into a stupor. He's... Yes. He's tragic, this guy. He talk about being isolated. You know, at right. least Sansa knows that there are other family members out there. Um, her entire line has not been wiped out, despite the fact that, of course, Ned has been executed. She knows that Rob is king of the north. He's fighting. He yeah. might liberate her. You know, she knows they're out there. But yeah, yeah. this poor Dantos, <laughs> his entire, he has no family connection whatsoever. They're gone. And it was, as you said, you know, punishment. Um, for the the capture of yeah. King Ares. Yeah, yeah, huh? Yeah, it's 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 really tragic, um, and it, it makes me makes me hope that at some point maybe we'll get you know a series just based on that era. Uh, I would love to see that as well. So maybe after House of Dragon, they'll move forward a few years and give us the Mad King. As long as there's still money to be made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So notable introductions in this chapter, of course, Dantos we meet for the first time. Uh, we we need a we meet a number of knights that we have not met before. Yeah. Um, I won't name them all, but uh, we also meet Lady Tonda and Lawless for the first time. Uh, Lawless. Uh, poor yes. Gosh, Talk about... I just poor thing. Then show differences in the book. The Hound does not fight in the tournament. And, oh, we get to see Tyrion's uh, famed saddle in this, <laughs> right? We've heard it. We've heard him talk about it before. We also see Tyrion's, you know, what he actually is supposed to look like with the bl the black and platinum hair. Yeah. And the mismatched eyes. 
Um, and then notable departures. I don't, I didn't find any departures in this chapter. Uh, I guess we could say the departure of Dantos's knighthood, um, because he's going to become Joffrey's fool, I suppose. Right. And meets a very tragic end later on. Um, really? Absolutely. I mean, it's terrible. I guess you could say wrong place, wrong time, always with Dantos, right? But as somebody, certainly that little finger recognizes early on, he can manipulate and use. I think the seeds of that are in this chapter. I think that yeah. little fingers looking on thinking, hmm, he, this guy has developed some kind of allegiance with Sansa. Who is Sansa going to trust? Right. How can I use that to my advantage? Right. He will be the, the uh, conduit, right, through yep. which I can then get Sansa and, and solidify more of my power. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything else that we missed? The only other thing I had, um, you know, I, I we pretty much talked about why Sansa seems to be such a hated character. And I think, you know, I think a lot of it does have to do with she's not displaying um, womanhood in a way that matches traditional masculinity, right? Those tend to be the characters that we tend to validate more right the idea that you can only be a strong female character um mm. if you are performing what we associate with stereotypical masculinity oh you're talking right? about from modern the modern readers from a modern yeah. right so those are the characters who i think get more attention they're the characters right. who are more popular right so when female characters step outside of you know what those traditional expectations of their gender those are the ones we tend to applaud so that makes me think a lot about just in society in general, how we tend to undervalue or devalue or even stigmatize anything associated with feminine, Mm, right? The mm -hmm. feminine. But I also was thinking about how just observant, you know, Sansa is. We talked about this. She is, you know, you mentioned this, Anthony. She is really the character whose point of view allows us as readers just to see how truly corrupt this world is. Yeah, she's learning to see below the surface, right? She's the one who really, I think more than any other character, allows us to see the contrast between what should be, what you're taught in the stories and the songs, and what is actually there. And so kind of as she grows up and learns how to play and learns how to, she is so observant, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of her chief function, particularly in this book, she gets a lot of point of view chapters, um, is to allow the reader to see that that crumbling, right? The idea that mm-hmm. the vast majority of people in this world are really just looking out for themselves. And that's what drives their motives. And there really isn't true chivalry. Uh, there really isn't true honor. And those who try to hold on to that, again, are usually the ones who will be snuffed out pretty early on, right? Those who try to do the right thing. Um, Cersei or learns it just that is not going to look the way that you thought it was going to look, right? Right. I, you I have think... to get in the dirt at times, even if you're an honorable character. Yeah, I think Tyrion does treat her with courtesy. Yes. Um, you know, he even he, he even does. says to Joffrey, like, I, I'm sorry for your loss, even though he... He's, <laughs> he doesn't really... He's not sorry that Robert's dead. I, I, I doubt that he's sorry. Um, right. Although he does have affection for Robert. Do you remember? He says at one point, I did kind of like Robert. He was a fool. Right. Um, but I'm sorry he's dead. He absolutely is acting courtly in this chapter, yes. right? We, we know that there are times when he will not act that way. Um, but um, 
Yeah, but it's just not going to look the way you thought it was going to look. It's not, you know, the person that is as handsome as Joffrey, you know, might not be that person, might not be the person out of your storybooks. And even, you know, if you look at the Tyrells, for example, they're beautiful people, right? They're kind to Sansa. Mm -hmm. And yet she's still kind of being warned, don't trust, don't trust. Mm -hmm. They might be giving you lemon cakes and telling you everything that you want to hear, but they also have a political purpose. Nobody is kind to you for no reason. So she really does, as sad as that is, you know, as she goes through, just learns not to trust people, to always question she's doing it to Tyrion at the end of this chapter, even though I think his motives toward her are much more pure than say the Tyrells, but even Tyrion, he's being nice, but Cersei was nice to me as well. Joffrey used to be nice to me. Yeah. And look how that turned out. And now throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. I mean, the dire wolf comes in and, and bites, uh, what's the ugly kid? Uh, Oh, Joffrey. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, you think yeah, he's ugly? Somewhere. You think Joffrey's ugly? Oh, he's repulsive. His face looks like it's both upside down and inside out somehow. Yeah, and and oddly attractive. I, I, don't, I don't know why All you're right. calling him ugly. Uh, you and I definitely have different tastes in princes. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> Madman and father of Mad Max, George Miller, is back with another apocalyptic tale from the Australian wastelands. This time we're getting a prequel featuring the origin story of Charlize Theron's character Furiosa, starring the Queen's Gambit's Anya Taylor-Joy in the title role and the mighty Thor Chris Hemsworth as the warlord Dr. Dementis. Furiosa promises more high-octane, slightly radioactive action and fun. Furiosa drives into theaters on May 24th, and we'll have our spoiler-free thoughts and impressions of the film, as well as a discussion of trailers and upcoming movies for everyone. But if you want to ride with us the full length of the podcast on the eternal highways of Valhalla, shiny and chrome, you're going to have to be a club member. Join today at support.baldmove.com. Get our full discussion of Furiosa and many more first-run films, plus tons of other bonus podcasts and ad-free feeds. Support.baldmove.com. So, Ian, you're a Scotsman, are you not? I am indeed, yes. Okay. Is that an old-timey term, or do we still is that still uh, correct to, to call men from Scotland Scotsmen? No, I, th- I think that's fine. It's, it's when we start getting referred to as Scotch. I think that's when we start to oh, be so slightly. It would have never occurred to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to test your, uh, your identity as a Scotsman. Okay. I just learned just this morning a Scottish idiom, and I'm hoping that you've heard this before. Okay. Okay, the Scottish idiom goes like this. Possession is 11 points in the law, and they say that there are but 12. Have you ever heard that before? I haven't, no. Okay, all right. Well, I I was looking up this idiom that we have in the U.S. called possession is nine tenths of the law. Yeah. Meaning that it's you know it's much more difficult to claim ownership of something if you don't have it in hand, right? Yeah. And then I was told by the internet, which is of course never wrong, right? <laughs> that this is sort of a evolution of uh, old uh, Scottish saying 
that I just I, I just quoted to you. Hmm. Um, and I just thought, well, that, that makes sense to me because you know, famously, Americans don't do fractions very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we've we've mistranslated the numbers. <laughs> um, so anyway, but I, I I had hoped that maybe you had heard that that saying before. Um, but it no. sounds like maybe it's too it's it's too old timey even for you, <laughs> Scottish uh, historian. I'm, I'm I'm obviously not Scottish enough. That's that's must be. Must be I've, I've tested your your <laughs> and I've failed as a Scotsman, and you failed. So we're just gonna call you Garden Variety British from now on. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I bring this up because it seems like, you know, we're talking about House of the Dragon. It seems like this is exactly Rhaenyra's problem at the end of season one. It feels like mm-hmm. she she has a good claim to the throne, but possession is kind of the lion's share of, <laughs> of the issue, right? It's like she might have the better claim, but geography is against her she's not in king's landing she's not publicly sitting on the iron throne um this is a big problem for her yeah i I think i think that coupled with the fact that she seems to lack an obvious kind of structure around her i mean obviously she has daemon but but beyond that i mean she has she as you say she's removed herself from the seat of power well, um, she's got the court, you know. She's got the court around her, and yeah, all of but, the all of the 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 be- wills and wessel wills and vessels. I don't think that's a, a phrase. Uh, <laughs> whistles and bells, <laughs> the accoutrement of of the court. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I, I suppose yeah. I mean, she does have her own court, but I suppose it, it or maybe it is due to location. But I just saw that as being. The various structures of government, like the the small council and things, are, are all there in King's Landing, and and Alicent and Otto have have control over that. I think that helps the the Greens to seize power. They're in position, physical position, to do it. I think ultimately, as well, it comes down to the fact that Rhaenyra is a woman. Um, right. I think, I, I think a large portion of Westeros has been itching to have a male successor, ever since Viserys named her. As he's ill. <laughs> right. No, that's certainly the story they're telling. But, you know, if let's just imagine the roles are reversed mm. and she's at court, she's there to put the father to bed, right? She mm. can put the yeah. king to, into the grave as she sees fit. She can arrange the coronation. I, just, I, I think... The idea of her being away from the court is is a, is a big problem for her, mm. and maybe mm. even I mean clearly the story that they're trying to tell is that her her gender is is the biggest problem of it, mm. uh, but she might be able to overcome that if she were in the right place at the right time. And I'm wondering if you can think of like elements of medieval history or Scottish history where you've got two claimants. And the one who's actually at court has the better claim, just because of possession being nine tenths of the law. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I think I think this, the, the House of the Dragon, generally, I think it's been alluded to by several historians that the obvious um, comparison is with 12th century England, is with the period of the anarchy, um, that period that follows the death of Henry the First, and 
the supposed succession of his his daughter Matilda, but but then the seizure of mm. the throne by by Stephen instead. And Stephen kind of does that, doesn't he? I mean, he he goes well, to maybe England. Let's he... back up here. Maybe uh, okay. tell us a few particulars of the anarchy that maybe we don't know. Well, so uh, I mean, Henry the First uh, has lost his son in the the white ship disaster. That the, the ship sinks, and the oh, heir yeah. to the English so throne we talked goes about with that, right? Yeah, the, the, the heir to the English throne goes with it, um, yeah. and, and so he's left then with no with no sons, um, and so his his daughter then is his next heir, and and rather like Viserys, he gathers the English nobility around him and, and has them swear to recognize Matilda, right. uh, the daughter, as as his heir. But of course, as soon as Henry dies, things are a bit different. And, and in part, it's because Matilda's husband is a bit of a problem. Um, and th- there is an English concern that, that England will be subjugated by a foreigner and, and these types of oh, ideas Oh, he's a as problem well. because he's a Frenchman? Is that well, right? Well, I, I mean, that was the problem before with Matilda when she was married to the, the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and then this is her second husband um, who is French. But, but yeah, there, there are still concerns about his actions in Normandy and and yeah there are concerns about what he would be like I suppose alongside her what, um, what t- so uh, it's just so, sorry to I, no, I no, no, no. I'm vague on these details what actions have put him in ill repute uh, so it's 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 Jeffrey of Anjou isn't it and I think he's just I think he has been throwing his weight around on the continent in regards to those those English domains on the continent uh, and and that then worries the english nobility because it's in that period isn't it where the anglo-norman dominion uh, is still in place but but england itself is developing something of its own separate identity um and and what it doesn't want and what it has rejected actually in the decades past is is to to somehow find itself subjugated to to a norman led Polity, I suppose. Right now, um, so his his chief sin, it seems like, is that he's gained a reputation for being overly ambitious. Yeah, I think that probably right. Okay, all right, and so that is, so her husband's a problem, okay, <laughs> but but she's been named queen, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and again, the, the nobility have signed up to that, uh, but I think I think there remains uh, a group or a. a, a a faction of the English nobility who who does want to see um, a, a male successor. I, I think, to be honest, that is often the case. I mean, we have to remember that medieval kingdoms and medieval nobles, you know, are, a, are, a, are a, an interesting ecosystem. Um, and half the time they don't even want children succeeding because these can be times of quite serious upheaval. Um, the, the, what, the perfect situation is that an adult male succeeds to the throne yeah. because they have the they, they have the ability to take control, keep things as they should be. Yeah, it's a better um, chance of peace, a peaceful transition, right? Yeah, and, and, and kind of benefit. So e- even in the case of a, a young male monarch coming to fruition in a succession, there is unease, I think, within the nobility, and I think that's ratcheted up when it's uh, when it's a potentially a, a female succession because it's not like th- there has been a long history of those in the, in the past. Right. Now, is Matilda in France when Henry I dies? Yeah, she's on the continent, yeah. Okay, so this is kind of what I'm talking about. Like, because she's out of the country, or beyond the water, whatever we want to call it, she, ha- she her gender's not just against her, it's geography. Yes, and I, I think that's where, um, that's where Stephen kind of steals a march. 
And he, 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 you know, you get that notion of him rushing to England to uh, capture the throne for himself. Right. But, but I don't think that would have been possible if he didn't also have support for his uh, for his accession. If if the English nobility had held firm and said, no, no, we've we've sworn to recognise Matilda as queen, then surely Stephen couldn't have been successful. It would have been a busted right. flush. It's all he's only successful if there is the support for him to actually do that to take that action. How did you like the show? I'm assuming uh, you're completely through the first season, right? As yes, I, as I, I, I managed to cover. Are. Uh, how did you like it? You know, you're a professional historian. You're also kind of interested in how the medieval period is represented in, in you know, modern storytelling. I'm kind of curious just to hear your general impressions. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, I read various reviews, which I thought were quite harsh, um, that were complaining about it being kind of slow. Um, but I, I thought it was I thought it was good to see different themes and different things being discussed that yeah me too that portrayal that's based very much on politics is based around the court succession you know uh, and i think that's that's very different from what game of thrones became which was all about you know war it was a kingdom at war and of course this is probably going to go that way too <laughs> but yeah but, but, but this I'll... shows the fault lines i mean i guess the the first the first book and the first season yeah it does. It does a lot to show the fault lines that are really like thirteen years old or something like that. But this really makes a meal out of the fault lines. The whole first season is about like you know you just every episode you hear that crack, just a little little bit little bit of a crack. Sometimes a bigger crack than the others, but you. You'd really get the sense that these people have a history with each other. The two main folks, Rhaenyra and Alicent, mm. you know, going back to childhood. So that the the stakes of the war, it feels to me, it's not just about the political aspirations of the characters. It's it's the emotional investments that they have in each other and that we have in them. And I, I'm just, I, I'm really enjoying that part of it. I agree, absolutely. And, and you don't, you don't have that investment in the characters unless you are given the opportunity to invest in them. Uh, right. and I don't know. It, it, obviously, it's it's affected by the time jumps, um, but but <laughs> still, you can you can see, as you say, that the, the the relationships that have developed then you know breaking apart or, or mm-hmm. changing, um, and the fact that a lot of this happens within the, the extended family as well, you know, just makes it even more interesting in terms of how that all develops. Yeah, and I have rather enjoyed it. <laughs> 